Aloha, North Kohala and beyond. This is Holly Allgood, and you are listening to Tutu's Talk Story here on KNKRLP 96.1 FM Kohala. My very special guest today is Alexandra Starr. She is uh, lives here in Havi, Hawaii, but she actually started her life in Kenya, Africa. And she's been many places in between. An entrepreneur, she's owned many businesses, and uh, she's here to talk with us today. Alexandra, welcome. Thank you for being here. Good morning. Thank you for inviting me. So I'm so interested. How is it that you started your life in Kenya? Well, uh, my mother's parents were early settlers in Kenya. They went... Um, around 1920, which was the first movement of British to Kenya. And my grandfather was a veterinarian, and he started a a vet lab there. And my mother was kind of a late child, a sort of unexpected child, so they, they had her quite late in life. And my mother was born in Kenya in 1923. She's still alive. She's 99. She'll be 100 this October. And uh, she was an only child. Um, my, my grandparents sent my mother away to school in England, as was the custom in the colonies then. And so my mother was sent to school initially in Wales, where her mother came from. And then the war broke out, and so she was unable to come home for a number of years. And she spent a number of years without her parents uh, in a surrogate family in Wales. Uh, Completely determined, she put herself through medical school in London, even when the bombs were going off and they were evacuating and there were blitzes. And so she didn't return home to her parents um, until I think about 13 or 14 years had passed. So when she got home, her father met her on the train and said, uh, my mother's name was Bernice, but her parents called her Johnny. And my grandfather said, hello, Johnny. Would you like an ice cream? (laughs) (laughs) My mother said, no, I'd like a gin and tonic. (laughs) (laughs) So that was how my mother uh, was there. My father was born in Scotland. He went to agricultural school, college in Edinburgh. And then he went to the Royal Tropical College of Agriculture in Trinidad, to learn tropical agriculture. And from there, the British government was signing up uh, candidates for the colonies, which were in full fling at that time. And my father had picked Kenya and got it. So he went to Kenya in about 1944 and was uh, exempt from the army because he was going into the colonial service. And there he met my mother. And was she a physician then? Uh, No, she uh, didn't work as a doctor because there was a tremendous need in Kenya for educators. So she worked as a teacher, but she also worked part-time in um, a plant pathology lab. 
And that was how she met my father. He came trundling in with a soil sample that he wanted to have analyzed. And he kind of ordered my mother around. And she said, look here, Buster, you'll have to wait your turn. And anyway, she got the soil analyzed. And he returned to, to pick it up. And that at that time, he asked her if she would like to go out for dinner. And so my mother accepted. It was a very small community in Kenya at that time. And my mother went out for dinner with my father, and her mother came as a chaperone. Uh-huh. And so they they did that, and then my father said, would you like to go to a wedding this weekend? My best friend's getting married. And she said, yes, I'd love to go. So they went to this wedding, and after the wedding, my father said, how about you and I get married? It was mm-hmm. that quick. Mm-hmm. They had really fallen for each other, but it was also, I think, the times, the war and everything. So my mother said, yes, yes, please. And um, my father was very good looking, very handsome and beautiful man. And my mum went home to her mother and said, would you like to go to a wedding next weekend? (laughs) (laughs) And her mother said, yes, I'd love to. Who's getting married? My mother said, I am. And she said, oh, to that lovely tall Scotsman. My mother said, yes. And that was how they started. Isn't that something? Yeah. yeah. And did you, uh, were you raised in Kenya? Yes, I grew up in Kenya. And um, my mother, as I said, was in the teaching profession. She, she taught every level, including university. And my father became, uh, he was in the agricultural department, and he soon quickly worked his way up to become the director of agriculture for the whole country and for East and Central Africa. And as was tradition, uh, traditional, I was sent to boarding school in England. So at the tender age of nine, I was sent to boarding school, and I attended a very famous school in Gloucestershire called Cheltenham Ladies College, which was the ultimate school um, for girls in the whole of Britain. And my father had to really save all his pennies to send me there and to afford the airfares to go back and forth. So I went there for seven and a half years and only returning to Kenya for uh, summer holidays and Christmas holidays. And in the Easter time holiday, I stayed with guardians in England who were old Kenya people. So what was that like at the age of nine, going from Kenya to boarding school in Britain? Well, it was kind of difficult for me at, at first, but I was kind of an adventurous type. And I loved it, and I loved the discipline. I loved all the subjects, and I loved the sport, and I loved the beautiful historic boarding school, which had been founded in the 1600s, and gorgeous buildings and beautiful um, church hall and unbelievable grounds. So I did love it, and and I thrived really well there and did well academically. It was the school that placed all the girls in Oxford and Cambridge universities. So that was kind of where you were headed if you went to that school. 
And is that where you wound up? No, I didn't wind up in Oxford or Cambridge because by that time, Kenya had become independent from Britain in 1963, in fact, when I was already in school. And um, my father uh, my father was knighted because of his work for the agricultural department. He, he created another department called the Department of Settlement, and he resettled all the British-owned farms with African farmers and saved the economy of the country, which was principally agriculture. So he was knighted for that, and when that happened, the World Bank in Washington, D.C., spotted him and asked him if he would join the World Bank and stay on in Kenya for another four years and administrate some of the World Bank lending programs in that country. So he did that, and then he had to go to Washington, D.C., and go to the office there, which he hated because he was used to working in the field. So at that point, I was ready to go to college, so it became apparent that I would go with my parents, and so I attended the Washington School, the, the um, what is its name, the university in Washington, I can't remember its name, oh, on Massachusetts, and uh, it was on two avenues, and it had that name, the American U. So I attended the American U, and I, I, instead of doing the academic things that I was so good at, I decided that I wanted to major in drama. They had a wonderful drama department there, and there in, in Washington, D.C., they had the Arena Stage, which was a theater in the round that was kind of like a Shakespearean theater, and I was already kind of quite a dramatic person, so I did that, and I worked uh, with a wonderful man called Leo Kurtz, who was a set designer who designed the sets for this theater in the round. So I did that for some time, um, but then I was very naughty, and I got myself pregnant. So instead of staying on in college, I decided I wanted to look after my child, and... Um, I went back to Kenya, where I knew I could have support, a nanny, and try to find my way. So when I got back to Kenya, I signed up for a four-year Montessori teacher's training. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, I was able to work in Montessori schools there as well as doing the teacher's training by correspondence. So for our listeners who may not be familiar with Montessori schools, can you tell us a little bit about their philosophy? Um, yes. Maria Montessori was an Italian educator who felt that children needed to learn m more didactically with their hands and needed to learn, instead of being regimented with the three R's and arithmetic and so on, that they needed to, to play with uh, beautifully designed toys that helped them to understand spatial relationships and and relationships between uh, objects and so on. So it was a, a little kinder, a little bit more like um, Steiner, Rudolf Steiner type education, not so harsh on the academics, but more of a gentle learning system. So I did that for a while. 
And then I decided that I needed to, uh, now my son was six, six or seven, and the, the education wasn't very good in Kenya for going forward. So I decided we needed to go back to the States and get him into a proper school, you know, where he would get a more formal education. So I returned to D.C. to be with near my parents. And unfortunately, the very moment that I returned, my father was posted to Indonesia, mm-hmm. to Java, to oversee the World Bank projects there. So I was on my own, and uh, my parents helped me get established and to get a place to live. And uh, I couldn't find any work in the Montessori teaching that paid anything. You know, it was sort of 12,000 a year, you know, as a Montessori teacher. So I thought, well, that won't do. So I signed up to go to the Washington School for Secretaries, which is the best secretarial school in the whole country. And I signed up for their program. They had a one-year program, uh, administrative assistant type thing. And I aced that school. Uh, I was secretary of the year. Uh, There were a couple of hundred girls. And I immediately was able to get work with very high, uh, highly esteemed attorneys in the city in Washington, D.C. So the girls who had the best qualifications got picked off to to work for big attorneys, congressmen, senators, and even in the White House. So I got I got very very good jobs, and they loved the fact that I was a British secretary. <laughs> um, that kind of <laughs> added some kind of spice, and uh, I enjoyed it very much. And I learned a lot about the American judicial system, and was kind of disappointed to to realize that justice could really be bought and sold in America. And that if you, uh, my, the, some of the attorneys I worked for represented big, big corporations that had millions of dollars. And those corporations could sway the way justice worked. And I really didn't appreciate that very much. I worked for some wonderful senators and congressmen on Capitol Hill. And then I applied for a job at the White House. There was a vacancy. And I was the most highly qualified person for that spot. And then they told me that because I was not a citizen, I couldn't accept the job. So that was it. I said, okay, that's the end of my secretarial career. I can't work in the White House. I'm not staying here. (laughs) So a friend of mine from Kenya who lived in California and had started uh, a winery business and had its big vineyards, said to me, you need to come to California. You're wasted in Washington, D.C. You're just never going to get anywhere staying there. So he sent me a ticket. And I went there, and he said, what I need you to do is go to wine school and learn everything you can about the wine industry. So I did. I signed up uh, first with um, Santa Rosa Junior College and then later with Sonoma State, who had a very good enology program. So I learned uh, enology, 
um, winery practices, the agriculture involved with, with growing grapes, wine marketing, all of those good things. And when I came out, I had that wonderful secretarial qualification and the wine knowledge. So I was hired by a very prestigious winery in Sonoma County called Sonoma Coutrere. And Sonoma Coutrere was very unusual because they had decided to be a Chardonnay-only facility. They built this big million, multi-million dollar winery and had tremendous vineyards. And they were the Chardonnay only and the first people to go that route. Chardonnay was becoming very, you know, the thing. And so I worked for a wonderful man there. His name was Bryce Jones. And he had been um, uh, a flyer in the in the Air Force. And he was a very charismatic and, and wonderful man. So I had a little bit of time there. And then I kind of tired of it a little bit and wanted to do something different. I went to work for another winery called Jordan that was started by Tom Jordan, who was the oil millionaire from Texas. And I was kind of tiring of commuting to the wine area because I lived on the coast in Bodega Bay. And one day I was going to work in Bodega Bay and going to the wine country and I saw a big billboard had gone up and it said, government building commercial fishing marina have jobs for you. <laughs> so I went down uh, to this, they were building this big commercial fishing marina for the fishermen of California and I met with the harbor master and I told him about all my wonderful qualifications, and he hired me. And I was hired as the assistant harbor master, and in four years that I worked there, I became a commercial fish buyer. I learned to buy fish, salmon, halibut, crab, sea urchins, you name it. I also acquired a boat broker's license during that time and sold a few boats and permits and I did that for four years. And because it was a government job, it was with the park, under the parks department, it was kind of a bit of a dead end. It wasn't going to really lead me anywhere. And one day I saw in the San Francisco paper an ad, executive fish buyer. I thought, that's me. And I called them up and they said, oh, well, madam, this job is in Alaska. I said, I've never been to Alaska. I'd love to go to Alaska. So I, I went for the interviews. It took them quite a few months to decide to hire me. And then they flew me up to Alaska. And we flew into Anchorage and then had a small plane take me to Kenai, which is on the Kenai Peninsula. And as soon as I stepped out of that little plane and my foot touched the snowy ground, I knew that I was home, that I had arrived where I was supposed to be. And this immediately, a herd of caribou came walking across the airstrip 
And I, I saw these big horns and antlers and these beautiful creatures, and I knew that I had arrived. From Kenya to Kenai, huh? That's right. From Africa to Alaska. And I ended up staying in Alaska for 30 years, over 30 years. And uh, I married a commercial fisherman who was one of my uh, subjects who delivered fish to, to my buying station. And I ended up working for a very prestigious commercial uh, fishery there called Inlet Salmon. And that was headed by a wonderful man who had been in Japan and learned fluent Japanese so that he could deal with the Japanese buyers who were the main buyers of Alaskan seafood. And uh, so I worked there for about four years, and it was seasonal. You know, the fish only came certain months of the year. So I was kind of at a loose end for those other months. So in the town of Homer, where I was buying fish, I saw an ad in the paper that said, grocery store manager needed. So I answered the ad, and it was the health food store. And it was very run down. It, had, it was a co-op, and it had become very run down. It was full of hippies. You didn't qualify if you didn't have a bone through your nose and dreadlocks, <laughs> you know. And... Um, so after a, a quite an extensive interview period, they hired me as the manager, and I turned the store around. In about six months, the revenues were coming in, the store was all cleaned up, I was ordering, I kind of instinctively knew what to order, because the the husband that I married, the first a man I married, the father of my child, was a health food kind of guy. He was from Connecticut, and he had taught me everything about health food and supplements and organic, and so I knew all that stuff. So uh, after six months, my now commercial fisherman husband said, I think you should buy the store. And so we gathered together the money and bought it, and then I ended up running it for the next 17 years and was grossing a million dollars a year in that little store in that tiny town of Homer all those years ago. So that was uh, exciting. Then the, the, the worst thing happened, which was that a box store, Fred Myers, decided they were going to come into Homer. So immediately all the little businesses panicked and we all voted against the box store, and we tried to keep the box store out. And I knew it would impact my business because they had a big health food department in Fred Myers. So anyway, they didn't come in, but another smaller box store came in and carried all the organic groceries and basically took the wind out of my sails. So I sold that store, did well, sold it. But in the meantime, with, when I was kind of uncertain, I opened another store in Homer called Samarkand, which was a sort of Tibetan mystical store. And uh, I carried mainly uh, painted Tibetan furniture, antique Chinese furniture, beautiful carpets from all over the Orient, 
Buddha statues. I sold hundreds of Buddha statues. You wouldn't believe in that tiny town. Um, a lot of aromatherapy items, incense, essential oils, silk kimonos from Japan. And so I was able to sachet from the health food store into this new store, which I did for the next seven years. And then in 2010, my father died and I needed to go and help my mother in the UK. So I closed that store down and sold it and went to the UK for the next seven years. I think this is a good time for a break. Yes. My goodness, what a story. You've <laughs> taken us, as I say, from Africa to Alaska. Can't wait to hear more. We'll be right back. The Kohala Senior Club Carolers are starting their holiday season. They will first visit the studios of KNKR Radio for a live broadcast at 9 a.m. on Tuesday, December 6th. The next stop is Takata Store on December 9th at 4 p.m. Then they will drop into Arakaki Store on December 14th at 4.30 p.m. Followed on December 16th by a visit to the Credit Union at 4.30 p.m. Come and see the senior carolers and enjoy their holiday cheer. Meli Kalikimaka. Aloha, this is Isla and Mikkel Anna, and we would love to invite you to join us for Activated Intuitive Talk Story. Yes, join us the first Wednesdays of each month from 3 to 4 p.m. Tune in locally at 96.1 FM or live stream from anywhere at knkr.org. And Isla, where would people go if they'd like to tune in to previous shows? I'm so glad you asked because they are located on Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts under Intuitive Talk Story. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And we look forward to igniting with you soon. North Hawaii Public Library will be hosting a talk story about the ancient Hawaiian lunar calendar, Monday, November 28th, from 5.30 to 6.30 p.m. Come talk story. Explore the ancient Hawaiian lunar calendar and use journaling to learn about your vahipana, or special celebrated place. The evening will be presented by Tumunale Aloha, hula consult and teacher of Hawaiian language and culture. That's Monday, December 19th, from 5.30 to 6.30 at the North Hawaii Public Library. Mahalo. Aloha, this is Holly Allgood. You're listening to Tutu's Talk Story here on KNKRLP 96.1 FM Kohala. My guest today is Alexandra Starr. She's been telling us about her very exciting life and times from Kenya to Kenai in Alaska. And uh, at, at the end of the last story, you were just mentioning that your, your father had passed and you went back to Britain. Right. Um, so before I go to that subject, I'll just tell you a, a story or two uh, that link my time in Kenya to my time in Alaska. 
When I was in my early 20s, my boyfriend and I were sitting in a bar, a very famous bar in Nairobi, um, having a drink. I think it was the New Stanley Hotel. And a young couple, American couple, had come in, and we were kind of close to them, and, and we started up uh, a conversation. And they wanted to know about fun things to do in Kenya. They had come out for a holiday. Well, it turns out that the young man was none other than Bobby Kennedy, mm. the son of Senator Kennedy, and he had come with his girlfriend from college and specifically to do some ornithological work. He was studying raptors at the time. So we uh, decided that he should climb Mount Kenya as a rite of passage. My boyfriend and I had climbed. My brother had been a mountain guide for all the mountains in East Africa. It's um, very like Hawaii. It's, it's a volcanic landscape. And so there are many, many large and small volcanoes right throughout the Rift Valley. So we planned this climb up Mount Kenya, and we had told Mr. Kennedy um, that we were going to go through this forested area that was often inhabited by rogue elephants. And we said, if you see a rogue elephant, you just stay very, very still, and the elephant will munch his leaves and then pass on. So we got into this forest. It was the first day of the climb. And lo and behold, several rogue elephants appeared so we all stood still, and I whispered and shouted to Bobby, stay absolutely still, don't move. And he said, hell no! And he threw off his backpack and started running, and his foot went into a hole, a badger hole, and he tripped and broke his leg. And so we all then said, now stay absolutely still, and eventually the elephants did move off, and I, because I was quite experienced on the mountain, was sent down to the base camp where I had to call for a helicopter and get medics to come and pick Mr. Kennedy up. So we got through that disaster, and then we spent uh, more time with him. We took him to the coast. His leg was now in plaster. And he and I wrote back and forth a little bit, and then I bought a copy of his book he had written, and um, then we kind of lost touch. Well, later, when I was in Alaska, uh, in Homer, they because Bobby Kennedy was had started the Riverkeeper system, he had cleaned up the Hudson River from the big polluters. He was chosen by our Alaska Cook Inlet Keeper to come to do an opening ceremony to launch a boat that we had purchased for the, the Cook Inlet Keeper. So I heard that he was coming, and um, he came up, and he delivered the most wonderful speech, just like his brother. He was a wonderful speaker. And at the end of the speech, I ran up. I had all these photographs of him on the mountain. So, Mr. Kennedy, Mr. Kennedy, do you remember me? And at that time, people called me Sandy. And he said, oh, Sandy, I couldn't believe it. So we reminisced and we looked at all these photographs. And then we took up a correspondence again uh, for some time and then finally again lost touch.
But that's my Kennedy story. <laughs> um, a nice connection. It was a very nice connection. And uh, he had a little bit of a troubled life. And um, his wife uh, committed suicide. And, and it was a, a difficult, very difficult time for him. So he sort of um, got attracted to the high life in Hollywood and ended up. And now he's kind of... Um, uh, what do you call it? Um, uh, conspiracy theorist. Mm -hmm. Yes. And against the vaccination and so on. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that was that. So after I I sold my shops in Alaska, I went to help my mother. She lived in a beautiful 13th century house in the south of England. It had been built in, uh, sorry, so it was 14th century. It had built, been built in 1370, and it was called a Wealden house, which was a specific style of house. Um, double story, beautiful, all made of uh, mud and daub, you know, uh, stones and, and big beams, oak beams and so on. Some of the beams had even been taken from huge ships in the 15th century and reused in this house. Anyway, I ended up staying with her for seven years, looking after her, and um, my second husband, Leonard, even though we had divorced by then, came with me as support, and we looked after my mother and her property for seven years. And then when she was 94, she fell and broke her leg, and she could no longer deal with the stairs and the difficult configuration of this house. So we had to get her into a care home where she's still t there to this day. And I sold her home and um, left England and then Leonard and I, he desperately wanted to move somewhere warm. That's what all the Alaska fishermen wanted to do. We were still very good friends. And so we looked at California, we looked at Texas, we looked at Florida, and somebody else said, why don't you look at Hawaii? So we flew here um, about six years ago, six, seven years ago, and rented a place in Captain Cook, and rented a car, and drove the entire island, every road. Leonard was very thorough. He wanted to go down every road and see every single settlement in town. And I fell in love with Javi because it was quite similar to Homer, kind of an old hippie town, a frontier town. And it, had, it just had the right vibe for me. So I ended up... Uh, I ended up buying the house here. Leonard uh, did not invest in the land and the property, but he came with me and stayed with me here in the house in Havi and unfortunately died in January from heart trouble. So here I am. I'm on my own now here in Havi. And how long have you been in Hawaii? Four years. Mm -hmm. And I love it dearly. Mm-hmm. And uh, tell us about your passions now. Well, I've always had a tremendous passion for cooking, so I am quite 
a culinary artist. And when I had the health food store, I had a restaurant associated with it as well, Alexandra's. And I made all um, health food, but on a very gourmet level. We had a bakery. We baked hundreds of loaves of bread and cakes and cookies and buns and scones and bagels and every type of biscuit and thing you could imagine. And I was serving 120 lunches a day and about 70 dinners at night. So it was a very, very busy time of my life. I was getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning and going to bed at midnight. You know, it was just in that peak period of your life when you have the energy and the strength to do such a thing. But as a result, uh, you know, I've always stayed very close to the hearth and the the uh, kitchen, so I love to cook. Um, I don't bake much here because the climate in Hawaii is not really conducive to delicate French baking. But fortunately, we have a wonderful, two incredible bakeries in Waimea, the Namako and the uh, Sandwich Isle, and they produce beautiful French baked goods, so I get to still enjoy those. What are, what are your favorite things to cook? Um, I am an omnivore, so I like to eat meat. I like to cook meat. I love uh, lamb and venison and the wild meats more than anything, and I love the Hawaii Island beef, which I think has a really good flavor, and you can fairly much be guaranteed that it's good, and you can buy organic chicken and um, on this island, so I cook that, and of course the seafood, the beautiful seafood from Hawaii, which I don't cook too often because it's very expensive, um, but I love to buy Ono, which is my favorite, and sometimes I buy marlin and cook that, and I love to eat the poke on the island. Um, and most of all, I think 90% of what I eat is vegetables. So I eat organic vegetables. I try to buy organic wherever I can, you know, having had the health food store, you could never look back. And um, So tell us about that. A lot of people say, oh, organic, you don't really need to buy organic. Do you think it really makes a difference? I do, because commercial produce is raised with pesticides and herbicides. And those two things translate into your body. What happened in the United States is that at one time, the whole agriculture was mom and pop businesses, mom and pop farms, 10 to 20 acre farms that were mixed farms. They had a couple of cows, some chickens, some produce, some corn, they grew their own potatoes, and they lived and survived uh, on their little farms. And then, after the war, the big chemical companies like DuPont and so on were impeached by the government, or implored by the government, to try to find ways to use the chemicals that had been developed for the war. And so they came up with these zany ideas that these chemicals could be used in agriculture. And indeed, the chemicals killed insects and so on and so forth. People weren't looking 
with a long view to what would happen, these insects would mutate. It was in 1945 that Rachel Carson wrote the book Silent Spring because birds were no longer able to lay viable eggs because they were eating insects that were full of these pesticides and so on. So then came mega agribusiness where these giant corporations started to do million-acre farms that were run by just a handful of people to drive these big combine harvesters and to to run these big operations. A lot of them were um, uh, were, were basically manned by only a very few people. And all those mom-and-pop farms had to quit. They couldn't keep up, plus they were bought out. The land was bought out. And so the mom-and-pop people went to the cities and became the poor folks. Now, in the meantime, agribusiness was getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and not only were they growing these million-acre wheat plantations, but they, they were beginning to do value-added. So like Kellogg's were not only selling the wheat kernels and to, to be ground for flour, but they were making cereals that used other less desirable ingredients and were making more and more money uh, with these, with these add-ons. So yes, I think we have to support organic agriculture. I think it's the trend. It's, it's going to spread all over the world. Eventually, people are going to learn how to do sustainable agriculture, how to use natural ingredients to fertilize the soil and to deter insects using plant-based insecticides like pyrethrum, which was one of the the things that my father was passionate about in Kenya, Kenya being a big grower of pyrethrum. It's a daisy-like flower that emits an insecticide uh, in its pollens and flowers and can be spread on um, crops to deter insects. It doesn't have a very long shelf life, but if consistently used, you can get rid of insects that way. So it is important, and it's also very important for your health, because chemicals in, in fertilizer and insecticides can seriously affect your organs and lead to cancer and other diseases. Mm -hmm. So yes, I support the organic. Mm -hmm. Well, any other passions you'd like to share with us? We, we only have 10 minutes left. Well, one of my other passions that, that I had in both of my stores in Alaska was essential oils and aromatherapy. So I really got very deeply into that, did a lot of workshops, studied the, the um, magical properties of these oils, and learned how to use them in a healing modality, hands-on healing, and using essential oils to heal. So I did quite a few workshops uh, with a company called Young Living who produce uh, oils and they uh, came up with um, raindrop therapy and he healing with essential oils and I have experienced a lot of people um, healing just from inhaling, not even topically applying these essential oils. So that became a very great passion and I also was very 
um, fondly behind producing these oils organically without using any chemicals or pesticides on the plantations. So that led me to take a fascination in French perfume. And French perfume was very, very special because in France they grew all their own aromatic plants. There were hundreds of acres of violets, jasmine, lavender, all of these exquisite aromatic plants that the French grew. And the French were pretty much the only people on the planet doing it. They were very, very exclusively into their beautiful perfumes, their scents. They're very fastidious people. They like to perfume themselves. It came from the French courts of Louis, who was literally bathing himself in, in colognes because they didn't have baths and showers at that time. And so the French became very much the leaders in the world of taking the essential oils from the plants and combining them into these exquisite fragrances by combinations of these oils. And so uh, after centuries of doing that in France, eventually Europe opened up to the Far East and to the Middle East, and so the French perfumers were able to get other essential oils like sandalwood and frankincense and myrrh um, from from the Far East and incorporate those also into their perfumes. So it became a very, very beautiful, aesthetic business. And when <clears throat> the perfumer named Coty came into the the scene, he lived next door to René Lalique. And René Lalique started to design the most exquisite perfume bottles and incredible packaging for these perfumes. So the perfumes were not just unbelievable fragrances. They were also exquisite, aesthetic treasures in this incredible packaging. And so that kind of bloomed and and led to great success in the French perfume business um, until, unfortunately, the Second World War, when a great deal of bombing and deprivation in, in Paris and ruination of many of the fields of perfume growing plants and so on led to a kind of decline in the perfume industry. Although there were some more modern perfumers, Christian Dior, Lanvin, Carven, who were able to get over the wartime troubles, who carried on Jean Patou. Most of them were clothing designers, and they added the perfumes to their clothing houses to add another layer of, of beauty. And um, so my fascination has mainly been in those perfumes that were produced between about 1880 and about 1950. So those are the perfumes that I have the greatest fascination for. And are they still good? If, they if someone are still has good, from yes. That, yeah. When they have been correctly stored, the perfumes are preserved in alcohol. The essential oils remain absolutely fine if they've been kept away from light and heat. 
And so they they are well preserved, and of course they're getting very very much more rare now as they're running out. There are only so many, and you can only find them when somebody's grandmother dies and their daughter cleans out her drawers and finds perfume that was brought back by her then young husband from the war in the nineteen in nineteen forty five, and so. You can find them, and they're worth finding. Yes. Well, uh, I want to thank you for all your fascinating stories today. You certainly have lived life well, and uh, you're a good example for all of us who may be afraid to start a business. It sounds like, what would your advice be? Just take the bull by the horns. Yeah. And know that it, whatever you're doing, if you're doing it right— and if you're using your good taste and and your good judgment to to produce to offer things for sale that other people want you can't go wrong mm-hmm. if you if you know what people want based on what you yourself like and want you can't go wrong in the retail business um if you offer beautiful things for sale Well, that's very good advice. Thank you so much for coming today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. We're going to say aloha. This is, you've been listening to Alexandra Starr on Tutu's Talk Story today on KNKR LP 96.1 FM Kohala. Aloha.